You're listening to Connect Communities Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. If you'd like to know more about our community, stop by our website at www.connectcommunity.tv. Enjoy the message. I'm going to continue a conversation we began last week, and I wanted to show you this book because this is where the conversation actually got started. Um, So it's out of Andy Stanley's book, Enemies of the Heart. Um, If you didn't get a chance to hear last week, obviously I'm going to encourage you to go to the podcast and listen to it, or you can pick up the book as well um, and read it. It's just an amazing book, and it's given so much insight into our hearts and um, the importance of keeping our hearts healthy. So today, like I said, I'm going to continue the conversation, but before I do, I want to pray. I know we've prayed many times already. But this prayer is really um, about what God's going to do in your heart um, as you hear these words. So, God, I just come into your presence. God, I know you want to do something. I know you have something special for each and every person here. And, Father, I pray for the walls to come down. I pray, Jesus, that we wouldn't be guarded, that we wouldn't arm up, but we'd release, that we would open our hands, that we'd release our thoughts, we'd release our hearts to hear from you this morning. That we would hear what you have for us, God. That we would receive every word that comes straight from your mouth, God. That your words would produce change, Father. The scriptures write, Father, and say that no word that comes from you returns empty. And so I pray, Father, this morning that nothing would return empty, but that it would produce fruit and a harvest into people's souls, God. That hearts here would be freed. That chains would be broken. That our lives, Father, would... Walk in the direction that you have for us, Father, that we wouldn't walk away from what you have for for us, but that we would walk towards. Just like like, uh, J.D. said, Father, that we would go and say, Lord, take me home. Take me home. God, we want to be close to you. We want to be ever so close to you, God. You are the reason. The reason we even do any of this cleaning in our hearts, God, is because we want to be closer to you. We want to be near to you. More and more each day. So I just pray this morning, Father, a special just anointing over this place. Let your presence be everything. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So if you weren't here last week, I started the conversation really because of happiness. And we all want to be happy. And that's the thing. Like if, we, if we really think about our lives, the thing that we want the most, the number one thing we want is to be happy. We want to find happiness. And sometimes happiness is just under a pile of things. Happiness is hidden under a pile of other emotions. And really, when we look at, the, at Jesus and, on earth and everything that he was concerned with, we quickly realize that the number one thing he was concerned with was our heart. The number one thing he was after was our heart. Nothing else really mattered as much. It didn't matter what you were doing. It didn't matter how you were behaving as long as your heart wasn't in the right place. Right? Everything you do is out of the overflow of that heart. And so it matters to him how your heart is. And a clean heart produces a healthy, a happy, a whole life. You know, a wholesome heart produces a wholesome life. And so we began the discussion with the four enemies of the heart. And those four enemies were guilt, which says, I owe you. It was anger, which says, you owe me. Um, It is greed, which says, I owe me. And then it's jealousy, which says God owes me. So again, I'm going to encourage you that if you didn't 
you know, listen to it. Go back into the podcast and listen because I break those down. Um, but I also gave you homework. And for those of you that did the homework, I am firm believer that God began to, sp to speak to you and already started you on the journey. The homework was really a prayer. It was to say, God, you know, what's inside me? What's going on inside me? Reveal to me maybe what I'm not seeing. Reveal to me what's going on inside so that I can walk towards you. Um, like I promised, this week is the, the good portion of it. Not just what's wrong with me, but how do I solve it, you know. I joked with a few people last week, and I don't know if I was going to see anybody back, but I'm glad to see some of you are back. <laughs> I'm always glad to see that. Now, I want to remind you this, that this is a process, right? It's a journey, and it's a journey God does not want you to take alone. And so some of these things you will have to do over and over and over again. And some of them actually you will do for the rest of your life. But here's the invitation. Don't do it alone. Let it not be about you trying and you trying and you always trying and sometimes you fall short and then you're trying again. That's not what it's about. It's about inviting Jesus in and say, God, help me become what you have for me. And I know that there's a few things and a few steps that I might have to take, but I don't take them alone. Right? Jesus wants to be with you every step of the way. So this, we're going to begin with guilt. Like I said, I started with guilt last week. And people who feel guilty, they tend to hide. Guilt is, um, guilt is, is, um, is fueled by secrecy and shame, right? So, so when, you, when you feel guilty, you tend to hide because you have these secrets and you have this shame and you want to keep them hidden. And because you want to keep them hidden, you, you start to shy away from people and you start to, like, it's an inward thing, right? You start to do this and, and, and I, um, I owe other people so that I don't want to be in the presence of other people. Or I don't want to be in the presence of the person I owe, I owe to. Uh, the great news about secrets and shame is that they lose their power when they are exposed, when exposed to the light, they lose their power. So the oppressive power of guilt is broken through confession, right? The antidote to guilt is confession. I mean, that seems kind of easy, right? So all I have to do is come before God and confess what I have done and confess that thing that's kind of sitting in my heart and that's weighing in. Yes and no. It's a little bit more than that. See, confession in the English dictionary says, you know, fessing up to what you've done. That's what confession. But confession in scriptures meant much more than that. Confession in scriptures meant change. Confession meant restitution and repentance and restoration. See, confession was more than just saying I'm sorry. And we find that in Numbers 5, verses 6 and 7. And we're going to read that. It says, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people, men or women, betray the Lord by doing wrong to another person, they are guilty. They must confess their sin and make full restitution for what they have done. Adding an additional 20% and returning it to the person who has been wronged. You see, in the Old Testament, when someone was guilty, he didn't just apologize. It wasn't just, hey, sorry. It was about more than saying, I'm sorry. God wants you to know that there's a responsibility, that you have a responsibility to the person. And so when you, when, when you have wronged, God wants to, when you have wronged another party, he doesn't want you to just, you know, feel bad for it. He wants you to change. He wants you to not do it again. See, God was interested in restitution as well as uh, change. 
And we see that God is still interested in that because if we look at the life of Zacchaeus in the New Testament, See, Zacchaeus was a tax collector who had gotten rich off of other people, off of oppressing other people. And he got rich by stealing, basically, and taking from people. And when he had an encounter with Jesus, he felt guilty. But not only did he feel guilty, but because he knew the law and because the encounter with Jesus was so powerful, he understood that something had to change and that I had to do right by the people I had done wrong. And so in Luke, we find in Luke 19, verse 8, we find Zacchaeus before the Lord and he says, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. See, it wasn't just about, okay, I came before God and I feel bad, right? And I feel bad and God and Jesus, I'm sorry for what I've done. But it was also, God, I'm sorry and I need to do something about it. And I know I need to change because that's how you instructed us. I have to do right by people. See, private confession is not enough when you feel guilty. Private confession is not enough because you know what? If you're being honest, how many times have you looked at God and have you said, God, I'm so sorry for this and I'm so sorry for doing this, but then you did it again. How many times? You know, if chances are many. Chances are many times, I'm like, I keep doing this over and over and over. But the truth is that if you have some, if you've done something and then you have to face the person who, who you have done wrong, if you have to face them and actually look them in the eye and say, I'm sorry, and here is how I need to give back to you or here's how I want to restitute what I have done, chances are you won't do that again. Chances are you don't want to do that again because you don't want to go through that. See, confession is not a relief of conscience. That's not what it is. Confession is the beginning of repentance. It's the first step. The first step. The Bible calls it metanoia, which is to change someone's way, right? And so confession is the first step. You change your direction. You change what you're doing, right? And you, God is very, very, very interested in your relationships. Can I say that? God is interested in your neighbor and how you relate to the people around you. And so part of the feeling of guilt and part of that feeling of shame is so that we will restore relationships, restore what was broken. Right? God says this. He is so interested in relationship. He's interested in the fellowship of you and your neighbor, not just you and him. But you and your neighbor. And he says this in Matthew 5. Right in the Sermon on the Mount. He makes it clear that if you come to me. If you come to the altar. And you're making a sacrifice. But you remember that you have something against. Or that your brother or sister has something against you. Get up. Go back and take care of it. And then come and offer me a sacrifice. See God cares about his relationship with you. But he cares about your relationship with your neighbor. So you may not come to God when you know that somebody is holding something against you. You may not come to God when you know, when it's accusing you in your heart that you have something to fix. Okay? And so God is serious about relationships. And part of this, of, this of, of breaking the foothold of guilt in our lives and breaking the power of sin in our lives is learning to confess. Guilty people need to learn to confess. Okay? And then never do it again. And restitute, and restitute when appropriate. Now, I do realize, let me say this, that some things cannot be restituted, right? You can't give back the years. You can't give back certain things. And, we, and the Lord is not um, 
crazy, <laughs> you know. The, he knows. But when it can be restituted, when it is something that can be returned, you must do it as well. Amen. The next um, enemy of the heart that we're going to talk about again, I'm going to tell you what the antidote is, is anger. Now, anger is dangerous and probably the most destructive one. See, where guilty people need to learn to confess, angry people need to learn to forgive. And I find there are three categories of angry people, right? There are the angry people that cannot find it in their heart to forgive. They just can't. There are the angry people that um, don't want to forgive because forgiving would mean that you, give the, you let the person off the hook and that's just not right. I can't. That's not right. And then there are the, the people that think that they have forgiven. They've gone through the motions and they've tried. But every time this person comes up or every time they remember the scenario, it just rises again in them. And they think, maybe I haven't forgiven. I've tried, but I haven't. So how, how do you forgive someone? And how do you forgive someone that keeps repeating the offense? That they keep doing it to you and like every time you have to keep, you know, forgiving? Well, we find the answer to this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.31. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, the connotation of get rid of here, let me, I'm going to give you a picture. Imagine a spider falls on you. And you go, get off, get off, get off, right? Like, get it off me. That's the connotation of get rid of here. When you think of get rid of bitter, of angerness and all of that, you, you get that off because I'm half the heebies right now. Get rid of. Now, I know some of you are going, yeah, but you don't know what has happened to me. You say get rid of. It's easy for you to say that, but you don't know what's happened to me. And you're right. I don't. I don't know what has happened to you. I am, I am not justifying what has happened to you. But I'll tell you this. Coming from a man who understood what it was like to be a victim. Now think Paul, when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he wasn't at a beach house somewhere writing letters with sipping his latte. He was in prison, right? He was unjustly in prison. He had been beaten. He had been shackled. He had, been gone, he had gone through all sorts of horrible things. And he writes from prison. Now you too, maybe you too were unjustly accused. Maybe you too were victimized. Maybe you too were... You know, you were hurt as well. Maybe it wasn't your fault, you know. Maybe you were unjustly um, hurt. But let me tell you this. From victims have no control over their lives. And victims are at the mercy of others. And victims only react and they are powerless. And the feeling of victimization will soon consume you where you begin to feel like it's okay. It's okay for me to hold on to this pain. It's okay for me to be angry. You know, because victims feel powerless and so they begin to just sink back and say, it's okay for me to be here. It's okay and this is how it's going to be and there's nothing I can do and that's not the truth. That is the lie from the enemy. It is not okay for you to stay there. See, because you staying there, you think as long as I feel this and as long as I'm here and as long as I hold on to this offense, the person is paying. And the truth is they're not paying. You are. You're paying. You continue to pay. And so anger has a way of saying he or she owes me. But eventually, with time, anger becomes everyone owes me. I am the victim. Right? 
But Paul goes on and he explains how, he gives us the antidote. He explains how to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Now, this could easily be re-read, uh, rewritten as the way you get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, you know, brawling and slander and every form of malice is to forgive each other. Is to forgive each other. And I know you're thinking, but they don't deserve it. They don't deserve to be forgiven. And maybe you're right. Maybe what they did was horrible, was so horrible, and they don't deserve it. But I'm going to keep on in that passage. And Paul writes a little bit further, and he says, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Now, can I ask you, do you deserve forgiveness? Because, friends, at some point, we all hurt someone. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short. And maybe you didn't do the horrible thing that they have done. But nonetheless, you hurt someone. We all do. And do you deserve forgiveness? See, just as Christ forgave us, we must remember that we have been forgiven too. Simply stated, forgiveness is a decision. It's a decision to cancel a debt owed. When there is hurt, like I said last week, there is a debt. Somebody owes you. And forgiveness is the decision to say, you don't owe me anymore. See, and some of you are going, well, how many times? How many times am I going to pardon this person? How many times am I going to forgive? And I'm going to give you a passage to read on your own at home. It's a little lengthy. So when you go home, I want you to write this down. Matthew 18, verse 23 to 35. That's how many times. And if you don't get it the first time you read, read it again. Keep reading it until it sinks into your heart. That's how many times the Lord answers that. Now, practically, how do I forgive? I'm going to give you four steps, right, because I don't want you to have any confusion as to how this happens and how do you do it. Because some people are going, I tried and I just don't seem to get it. Well, step number one, identify who are you angry with. Your anger has a name. It's a person. Identify the person. Who are you angry with? And then number two, what do they owe you? What is it that they have actually stolen? Don't say they did something wrong. No. What? What did they take from you? What has been stolen from you that you're holding on to? What is it? And then number three, you make the prayer. You cancel the debt. You say, Father, so-and-so has taken this and that from me. I have held on to this debt long enough. I choose to cancel the debt. So-and-so does not owe me anymore. Just as you have forgiven me, I forgive so-and-so. You cancel that debt. You release it. You forgive them. And then the last step is you dismiss the case. Every time that thing rises up in you and every time you feel the feelings again and every time the thought comes up, you say, so-and-so does not owe me. So-and-so does not owe me. And the feeling will follow eventually. It's not a feeling. It's a decision. So-and-so does not owe me. And you repeat that as long as you have to until your feelings follow. Now, number three, we're going to talk about greed. Greed, like I said last week, greed is fueled by fear. Greedy people don't believe that God will take care of them. They believe that they have to take care of themselves. 
right? They got themselves there, so they have to maintain it. And greed is a hard one to diagnose, especially self-diagnose, because greedy people usually hide be behind being good savers. You know, like, I'm a good saver. I, you know, I am, I am having financial security, right? Um, and so those people, what they do is they hoard. They, they, they lead a life of self-indulgence, right? They, just, they just, just keep acquiring things and keep getting things. And Jesus had, was actually pretty blunt about greed. You know, there's this passage, passage in Luke 12, 15. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then after that, he launches into the parable of the wealthy landowner. And I know some of you have already read it. But if you haven't, you'll find it in Luke 12, 13 through 21. I'm encouraged you to read it when you get home. But in summary, what happens is this landowner had a really bountiful year. And his harvest was like more than he could contain. His barns actually couldn't contain everything he got. And so his thought was, well, I'm going to build a bigger barn. Right? It never occurred to him that God was blessing him. So if God was blessing him, maybe he was blessing him so he could be a blessing to someone else. It never occurred to him that maybe all this blessing had purpose. Right? And so, Jesus, uh, so God calls this man a fool. He says, you store up riches for yourself, but you're not rich towards me. You're not rich towards God. See, the greedy doesn't consider that maybe the blessing is just not for him, not just, just for him, but it's for those around him as well. That maybe God is blessing him so he could be a blessing. But instead he hoards. Instead he buys a bigger house. Instead he gets another car. Instead he, you know, goes ahead and gets a storage unit to put all the extra stuff he has that he'll never touch again. Whereas those things could have maybe been a blessing to someone else. The solution to greed is actually pretty simple. From time to time, one ought to ask, why have I been so blessed? Why do I have more than I need? Greed is conquered through generosity. Giving breaks the grip of greed in your life. So whether you think you have extra or not, give. Give generously. See, greed is not evidenced by how you think, but by what you do. Right? Greed by what you do. Sometimes you see someone in need and you think, man, I wish I could help them. And your heart actually really goes out to them, right? But you don't help them because you think you don't have enough. And like, I wish I had more. I wish I had enough. But you don't actually do anything. And so you think, well, but my intention is good. So is it fair to say you're still greedy? Yes. Because greed is evidenced by what you do. Remember that greed says, I have gotten myself here. I must maintain it. Right? It's the opposite thought. God has gotten you there. He will take care of you. If the need came to you, you can provide for it. And you have, give. Give, generously. The thought is, give, as, give the way you would want God to give to you. How you would think God would send someone else to give to you. See, the other part that we forget, oh, let me just say this. Mo having money is not a bad thing. Having money is not a bad thing. It is not knowing why you have been given the blessings that gets you in trouble. It's not bad to have it. But we ought to think that we ought to realize that we're not owners of anything. We are stewards. We're managers of what God has given us. So it's not bad to have. We just ought to consider that, you know what, I have been blessed how can I bless others? 
How can I be a blessing to others? As God is giving to me, how can I just help someone else that might be in need? We're, we are not owners. While on this earth, we are managers. And remember this, that life is but a vapor. You don't know your tomorrow. So you may be here today and gone tomorrow. And what was all that wealth? Amen. Last thought I want to I share. The last uh, enemy is jealousy. And jealousy is a tricky one because jealousy says God owes me. And most people go, ooh, that's even tough to say. It is. But at the core, you think that God owes you because if God had taken care of you the way he, take, he took care of your neighbor or your friend or your family, if he had done for you what he, had done for, for what he has done for them, you would be in a much better place. You would be secure financially. You would be married. You would have a better job. You would have the children you've always wanted. You wouldn't be sick. You would, you would, and you would. It's God's fault. He hasn't done it. See, the driving force, though, behind jealousy is actually the core issue of every relational problem you have. From all of them. From marriage to sibling relationship to work relationship. Every single relationship, it's the, there's a core issue. And James sheds a beautiful light on it with one brilliant question. In James 4, James, the brother of Jesus, who, you know, has some good credentials. He was right there. He sheds she sheds light on this on James 4. He said, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And then he answers, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You desire and do not have, so you murder. The problem is that you are not getting what you want. And that's a hard one. <laughs> that's a hard one to swallow. But the truth is, we want and we do not get. I mean, we think about the word murder, you know, like I never killed anyone. But think about the person who has murdered. Think about the murderer. Did they get what they wanted? They didn't get something that they wanted and that's why they murdered. You covet. It goes on to say you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. Covet is, means to hotly pursue, to strive after. So it's someone who's constantly trying to meet a need that can't seem to be satisfied, right? Because our thirsts and our appetites are never fully satisfied. And so let me ask you this morning a quick heart check. Consider every fight or quarrel you've had, every, every relational conflict you've had. Was there something in there that you, you weren't getting? Was there something in there that you wanted that you just weren't getting and so you kept on bickering? See, so what do you do? You go, well... Yeah, I have desires. I have wants. What do I do about it? Like, do I can't just get them off me, you know? Like, how, how, what, what, what do I do? How do I solve it? Well, our friend James goes on to say more. So let's look at what he says. He says, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. God wants you to bring to him. He wants you to bring your desires to him. He wants you to bring your wants to him. And some of you in the room I know right now are going, I did. I did, I asked God to change their heart. I asked God to change that person. I asked God to intervene. But what James is saying here is much deeper than that. 
what James is saying is bring your deep desires to God. Bring your real wants and needs and concerns to God. Bring really what's going on inside to him. He echoes what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. See, there's nothing too big. There's nothing too small. There's no, I shouldn't really be feeling this way, but I am God, so here it is kind of prayer. Right? Bring it all. Bring it all. Why? Well, because if it's important to you, it's important to God. If it matters to you, it matters to God. Bring all of it. Bring, the brink of, bring everything. Bring your love life that's not going the way you planned. Bring your career who has, you know, has become more like this dull nine-to-five thing that you do. Bring your concerns. Bring your wants. Bring, you know, the cry, cry of your heart. Bring it all. Lay it all at his feet. See, once you've confessed that the root problem is that you're not getting what you want, and then you give to God all, of, all that you want, like you share with him what those wants are, then you will find the freedom to live in peace. Because now so-and-so does not owe you anything. It's not their fault, and it's not that they have and that you don't have. Now you've given it to God, and you've released it in his hands, and you find the freedom to live in peace. Now nobody else is your provider but God. Now I know some of you are still thinking, I did that. I still don't have my Porsche. <laughs> I did that and I still don't have my husband. I did that and I still don't have my children. I did that, but I still don't see what I asked for. Well, James wasn't done. Don't you love James? He thought about all of it. He says, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what you, will give you pleasure. So let me get this straight. James tells me to bring it to God because God cares, right? Bring it all to God. But then I have to be able to receive a no. Yes. You have to be able to receive a no. See, the Lord loves us too much to give us everything we want. And he will not finance our self-destructive search for meaning outside of him. He will not. Now let me put it this way. For those of you that have uh, children in the room, I'll make it really clear in a brilliant picture for you. You have a two-year-old. And your two-year-old comes to you and asks for a pair of scissors. And you say, uh, no. <laughs> I'm not going to give you a pair of scissors. And then your two-year-old goes into the drawer and gets the scissors by themselves. They go in and get it by themselves and they don't ask you. Would you prefer that they went and got it by themselves? No. You don't want to give it to them. You don't want them to go get it by themselves. Why? Because you know that it's not good for them. It's, only, it's the same with God. God doesn't want you to go try to get it by yourself. He knows. The same way you want your child to understand that you know What's best for them. You need them to trust that scissors will not be good. And if I said it's not going to be good, it's not going to be good for them. We need to look at that as our Heavenly Father with the same picture. And us as two-year-olds sometimes. The answer has to be no. You're may maybe you're not ready. Maybe it will hurt you. I don't know. There's so many reasons why the answer could be no. But we have to trust that when it's no, there's a reason. God wants you to depend on him and ask him, but also trust that when the answer is no, it is good for you. 
If we are able to do that, if we're able to trust God that way, we will find peace in our hearts and we won't live frustrated with what we don't have. See, jealousy untreated becomes something worse. It becomes resentment. And resentment has no boundaries. Resentment goes from that person did something to the whole class of person. So now it's not the rich, per the rich neighbor I have a problem with. It's all rich people. Now it's not my married friend that I have a problem with, but it's all married people. Now it's not, you know, the, the friend who's able to fit into jeans that I don't fit, but it's all people who are skinny. Right? It becomes this thing where it's like a whole category of people now I don't like because I have this resentment in my heart. And the anecdote to jealousy is celebration. We have to learn to celebrate when other people get what we want. When other people have what we want. Celebration begins to change us. Right? Celebration keeps us at bay. It doesn't allow jealousy to come in. Celebrating the success of those you have potential to envy will allow you to conquer those emotions. You must celebrate. Now, can I be real with you for a minute? I have a sister who is eight years younger than me, who is beautiful, most of you know. And... For all intents and purposes, you know, we have the same genes, same parental genes. But she somehow is able to get pregnant and, and bounce back like an elastic. You know, all of a sudden it's like, okay, she's back to her zero. <laughs> you know, and so it's easy for me to compare, right? I'm being just real with you guys. It's easy for me to try to compare. But my sister has always been beautiful. He's, she's always been, but she's also been very dedicated. So fashion and, 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 you know, makeup and all that stuff, she researches. She goes after, like, she wants to learn and she tries things. And she, like, this is, this is what she loves to do and she enjoys it. And, and obviously because she's so into it, I mean, she's stunning all the time. All her pictures are beautiful. And there's a potential there for me to envy. There's a potential for me to allow, you know, there's a potential for envy. But I have learned, I have learned that the antidote to envy is celebration. So every chance I get when I see her post a picture that she looks beautiful at, I comment, you're beautiful. You look great. That's a wonderful picture. Anything she gets, any kind of exposure she gets, I celebrate, I share, I tell people about. Because I understand that if I allow that to reside in my heart, I can become jealous. There's no one is, no one is impervious to it. Right? Everybody can go down that road. And so what I do is I make every effort on my part to celebrate her success and celebrate the things that she does. Because I will not allow jealousy to destroy our relationship. I won't allow that. Now, John Nash, John Nash once said, perhaps it's good to have a beautiful mind, but an even greater gift to have a beautiful heart. Can I encourage you this morning to take an inventory of your heart? What's going on in there? Is there guilt? Is there anger? Is there greed? Is there jealousy? Are there things that are trying to rise up in you? Have you guarded your heart like the proverb says? Do you, have you guarded your heart against these enemies? Or have you built up walls that safely enclose those enemies within? Have you guarded it or have you kept them inside? 
it's time to do a little bit of housekeeping and it's time for us to consider what's going on and we want to be happy and we want to live whole lives. That means we have to take a look inside. And if not for you, can I ask you, what about your children? What about the generation to come? What about the people around you? If not just for you, would you consider that those around you need you to? Need you to take a look inside and deal with the stuff that's spilling over. See, Jesus cares about what's going on inside. He cares about what's going on in your heart. He wants to see you live healthy, whole, happy, and become what you were designed to become. But some of these things need to be dealt with. And so my encouragement to you this morning is that if anything spoke to you, if there's anything in there that just kind of was loud, because you know, you know what's going on inside. If there was anything in there that spoke to you, can I encourage you to come to Jesus with it and, and do what you now know you can do and take the steps that you now know you can take and allow him to walk you through this journey to wholeness. Remember, I'll end with the scripture that I began. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. Amen.